Borderlines, Ley Lines and Fallen Angels, Episode 1. After a brief wait, a handful of brown-toothed Arab lads and two elderly Bedouin women embarked. The taxi was full. And we set off out of the city to the border. It was hard to believe that after such a short distance we could be standing on the edge of such a different world. Before us stood the checkpoint, its architecture and faces hardened to a homogenous inscrutability born of the long years of anxiety that places such as this generate. Somehow the other occupants of the taxi seem to have evaporated, so alone, clutching our British passports as if they held some kind of talismanic power, we walked through to the other side. Passing through the exit door, we were confronted with an expanse of rubble and general detritus stretching out before us for about the width of a football pitch. In the distance stood the smaller, more ramshackle West Bank checkpoint. As I stepped out, the realisation hit me like a brick. I'd seen war zones on television, But up until this point, I thought they were things that only other people experienced. And now, here, I was standing in the middle of one. It was the beginning of the Intifada. At that time, the Palestinians and the Israelis were so obsessively focused on one another, as foreigners, we seemed to be able to pass through the midst of them, unseen like ghosts. In the dry desert light, a scattering of Palestinians prostrated themselves in attitudes of prayer amid the rubble. Around us, the air seemed to open out into a kind of thrilling, agrophobic rush. At any moment, I felt as if a bullet could whistle past me from any direction. I had heard tales of soldiers and war correspondents becoming addicted to the miasma of war. I would like to say that I felt a sense of fear and moral outrage at such a place could exist, but I'm ashamed to say that I was transfixed by the moment. I felt vital and alive.
On reaching the West Bank, we got into another taxi and passed for several miles through the derelict-looking streets until eventually we came across the great edifice of the Holy Sepulchre, the point of genesis for the Christian mysteries. We walked across the deserted plaza into the main body of the church. Inside, still, there was not a soul to be seen. We descended the steps into the core of the mysteries, the crypt which was once said to have been the stable where the infant Jesus was born. It was a short vaulted tunnel somewhat reminiscent of an air raid shelter, lined with black painted hardboard hung with gold effect ornaments, which was disconcertingly coming away from the wall. It felt a sad deserted place. Any sense of spirit that may have once been here have for the moment sunk back into the desert. We walked back into the upper world to the empty body of the church, adrenaline like alcohol, once spent, transmutes to poison in our veins. My sense of euphoria was beginning to turn into jagged nervousness. We left the church and headed to a cafe across the road. It looked closed, but on our approach, the proprietor appeared from nowhere and pulled two plastic chairs off the table for us. We ordered two coffees. The strong black perfumed coffee, which is normally served in small cups, appeared in two sizable beakers. Before long, a huge caffeine injection combined with the decaying adrenaline kicked in. The thought of sitting in another vehicle was out of the question. We decided to walk the several miles back to the border. Head spinning and heart pounding, we walked through the bombed out streets we had previously seen from the relative comfort of the taxi window. Still, not a soul was to be seen, save for a man in combat fatigues, loading Kalashnikovs into the boot of a car. Keep on walking, I repeated like a mantra to myself. They cannot see us. We're like ghosts. The paradox of a border is that it's something that cannot exist on its own. It merely assumes the appearance of existence at the meeting point of two different spaces. The places either side of the border may have an intrinsic reality of their own, but a border never can. The great irony of this paradox is that the border may become to us more evident and real than anything it seeks to divide, transforming one side into here, the other side into there. One side into us and the other side into them. Israel is a land obsessed with borders. In fact, one is tempted to say that the whole place is defined by borders. They call the border between Israel and the West Bank the Green Line and will tell you with wide open eyes that from an aerial picture you can see it as a band of verdant life stretching through the desert as if their righteousness alone can coax life from the dusty land. 
Within is strength, identity and divine purpose. Without is hostility and otherness. For beyond there lay the desert which belongs to Set, the land of unbalanced force ruled by the kings of Edom. The defence of this border is not just about territory, it's about being. Borderlines are far more than just lines drawn upon a map. They can become the facets or lines of stress that form our consciousness. Those who walk beyond our acknowledged borders can become as ghosts, half seen and half known. I came across one such ghost as this in a garage on the edge of Tel Aviv. As I was standing, a tall figure in a blue jalaba seemed to come from nowhere and drift across the forecourt. My host and their friends fell silent and stood with an air of awkward self-consciousness while he passed. Who was he? I asked. My host replied, he's Drews. Still none the wiser, I asked, who are the Drews? There was another awkward silence. Then one of the other lads cut in. They live in the villages to the north. They are neither Israeli, Palestinian or Gentile. This was not a statement of nationality. This meant they were neither Jew, Muslim or Christian. He then added, they use them as trackers in the army. They have, what do you call it? The second sight. Even today, little is known about the Druze. They tend to live in tight-knit communities and neither marry nor convert out of their faith. In the 1920s, the adventurer William Seabrook spent time with the Druze. He described them as fearsome warrior people who, as in the East, had distinct castes of warriors and holy men. Also like those in the Far East, they believed in reincarnation of the soul. Unlike the Bedouin, they lived not in tents but in stone, and their religion was a mystery religion, its symbol being the golden calf. They seem to have emerged from Islam about a thousand years ago. They seem to be a mystical faith that believes in the absolute unity of God, drawing influences not only from the Far East but also from Gnosticism and Neoplatonism. They believe in both the transcendence and the imminence of the divine. The scriptures, the, the Book of Wisdom, can be read both on a mundane and a mystical level. And so, to our very being and the world around us is both mundane and imbued with the essence of the divine. Borderlines are always a matter of perspective. As the Abrahamic faith would consider the Druze to be quite beyond their fold, so the Druze themselves would consider their faith to embrace them all. Within Israel itself, there seems to be a network of unseen borders, discernible only to its inhabitants. They all seem to be in possession of a complex mind map of the places they can go and they can't go. Invisible boundaries mark this street, that town or this building strictly out of bounds. This unseen and unspoken prohibition seems only to apply to the natives. Ignorance is bliss. As a Gentile, I seem to be able to pass anywhere. 
As a result of this, my English friends were glad of using me as an excuse to visit parts of the country they'd previously been unable to see. It was the turn of the millennium. I'd just built a carved timber frame lich gate for a burial ground in West Cornwall. The lich gate is a liminal point between the living and the dead, the sacred land within and the secular land without, where the coffin rests on its final leg of its journey. It was one of the rare occasions where I'd actually made a tidy profit, and it seemed apt that I should use the money for something transformative, something special. At the time, two of my friends had met Israeli partners and had moved to Tel Aviv. This would be an ideal opportunity, not only to visit them in their new world, but also to experience that landscape which formed the backdrop to the Western mysteries. Two thousand years ago, this landscape became an alchemical crucible where Neoplatonists, Gnostics and the mystery cults conjoined to create a light that shone through the ages. The landscape and the mysteries are inextricably entwined. I was intrigued by the idea that what we saw as witchcraft and the old cunning traditions were in actual fact part of some much deeper mystery belief. And although they were very much rooted in our own soil, these beliefs were in some way connected with the mysteries of the Middle East. This was an idea that had been explored by writers such as Idris Shah, Henry Corbin, Lou, and a then great friend, the cunning man, scholar and poet, Andrew Chumney. He had recently written a poem, Kutub, which seemed to be an embodiment of this mystery. One verse seemed to shout out at me. Meet me at the altar table. Meet me beneath the black noon sun. Drink from the cup of thine own blood and seek for that which all men shun. At midnight 
mid the field of corn. The bull is slain, the snake is born. Thy path, this moment, hath begun. So book in hand, off I set. Israel is a strange country formed in the 1940s from a dream of a mythical homeland. It's a strip of land about the size of Wales, bounded by the Mediterranean in the east and the desert in the west. As testament to the importance of the place along its length lay great mounds called tells, formed from layer upon layer of the ruins of ancient civilizations going back to antiquity. Over this land brooded the tale of the Watchers, the fallen angels who had once made landfall at this place. These were the giants who appeared fleetingly in the Old Testament, though it's in the apocryphal books where their tale is more fully told. After defying God and walking amongst humanity, they each suffered a punishment at the hands of avenging angels. Of their two leaders, Semyaza was set to hang in the heavens, and there he still hangs in the constellation of Orion. Whereas Azazel was entombed in the earth, and it was said his burial place was in the Sinai Desert. So off down south we went. We passed over the great arid expanse of the Negev, on the edge of the great basin of Mitzbeh Ramon, we stopped with some friends of my host. It felt like the Wild West, farmsteads taking the land inch by inch. Out of the blue, one of them commented that the desert was like a sea with no water. Another verse shot out at me. Sheathed in a mask of emerald, the desert neath the verdant land until the sapphire waters wash the pearl from out each grain of sand. Upon that sea the stone shall float, a light to lure the mage's boat, like dew caught on a spider's strand. Travelling, we stopped at the valley of Timna, great pillars of rock on the cliff face sheltered an ancient temple to Hathor. Ravens circled, glowing an iridescent night blue in the dazzling desert sun. Onwards we went again, past the weirdly incongruous tacky resort of Elat, through another surreal border crossing into Egypt and the edge of Sinai. A taxi took us down a dusty road to a Bedouin encampment, aptly named Rasashtan the devil's head. It's hard to explain the enormity and the consciousness changing qualities of the desert. Before us was the Red Sea, the place where the old Cornish Pellas sent errant spirits to rest. Behind was the great desert where the burning bush once shone. And beyond a great inhospitable mountain range that stretched halfway across the planet. 
These crags had no individual names, spirits or stories. It was just too vast and too impersonal. If there was ever a place where a transcendent monotheism could grow, it was here. In my journal I wrote, I saw the moon rise over the Red Sea and the mountains. Nama came to me. I was Cain. Cain was the fire from God. She was the fire reflected in the sea. They were two serpents coiled in an eternal flowing embrace. She was the sea, the sky, the desert. Through her eyes I could see God. In the old Cornish Pella mysteries, there is a charm for the staunching of blood, it runs. As Christ was born in Bethlehem and baptised in the River Jordan, he said to the water, Be still, so shall thy blood. By the principle of sympathetic magic, this is drawing upon the apocryphal tale of Jesus stopping the flow of the River Jordan. This tale draws deeply upon one of the core mysteries of the West. From the cedar forests of the Lebanese uplands rises the River Jordan, which flows downwards, forming the eastern boundary of Israel. A thin watery line dividing the Holy Land from the vast expanse of desert and mountains stretching halfway across the planet. As the Eastern mysteries are epitomised by the mysteries of fire, so the Western mysteries could be said to be symbolised by the sacred mysteries of water. The ancient Celts, too, were aware of this mystery. They were well aware that the rivers, pools and waterways were the borderline between this world and beyond, for it was here they left their offerings and sacrifices. Without doubt the Jordan is the Ganges of the West. It was from here that the mysteries were formulated, emanated and purified 2,000 years ago. On its travels the river forms two great bodies of water, the freshwater sea of Galilee in the north and a thick mineral soup of the Dead Sea in the south, charging the land like two great battery terminals of mercy and severity. We passed through the West Bank and drove down and down and down the great long road which passes through the most inhospitable rock and gravel expanse one could ever imagine, down to one of the lowest points on the planet, the Dead Sea. Aptly named, it's hard to imagine how anyone could have survived here, but just over 2,000 years ago, mystics and holy folk flocked to this place in search of the unknowable and eventually forming holy monastic communities. It was the caves above this place that many sacred scrolls for so-called Qumran or Dead Sea Scrolls from this time were hidden and subsequently rediscovered. And it was from these scrolls that many of the hidden mysteries of these times were brought back into our consciousness. We plunged into the waters. It was as if buoyancy aids were attached to our limbs. It was impossible to sink. One could quite literally sit upon the surface of the water. We scooped up the thick black mud 
beneath and we smeared it over our bodies. In another great paradox of the desert, it was said that this mud, when applied to the skin, had incredible curative properties, but a single mouthful could kill you. Nothing about this place was as you expected. The wind and the night were both hot. And even in the intense heat of the day, there was no sweat, no sunburn, no hay fever. On the beach, just yards from this benignly poisoned sea, were pools of clear, pure, fresh water. We washed ourselves and began our journey back into the desert. We camped at the foot of a great, sheer, rocky pinnacle rising vertically from the flat plain, where the Jews held their last stand against the Romans. Night fell and the full moon rose from over the waters in the distance. There was none of the subtle glow of the watery Celtic moons with which I was so familiar with. It towered above us, bathing the desert in an almost electric neon blue light. Unable to sleep, I walked a short distance into the desert and I came across a square of stones open on one side, marked out upon the ground. It was one of the holy places, the portable desert mosques of the Bedouin. Like the Druze, the beliefs of the Bedouin too seemed shrouded in mystery. They were said to be predominantly Muslim, but their Islam was not the Islam of the settled Palestinians. It seemed to be, have been cut from an older cloth. It was said that once the Sahara was a fertile land of plenty, but as the unforgiving march of desertification began to press on, the indigenous tribes were forced northwards. Some became the Berber, people of the Atlas Mountains and Algeria. Some went east and became the Bedouin. And some pressed on even further north to become the Sami of Lapland and the small, dark-skinned prehistoric mound builders who came before the Celts in our own lands. And with them, they brought the tales of the myriad spirits who walk the realms between us and the gods. Even in the most hardline monotheistic faith, the green shoots of polytheism seem always to force its way through the cracks. Here, in the desert, echoes of a past epoch appeared shimmering like a mirage in the arid desert heat. The Qumran texts also speak of strange sky vehicles and of the sons of heaven who came to earth. Their arrival and departure were accompanied by clouds of smoke and fire.
was a Quarry Studio production, made in a secret location in a quarry somewhere in West Cornwall. Words, music, sounds and production, Steve Patterson. Engineering, editing, production and additional voice, Dave Wisdom. Additional voice, website design and brainwaves, Lisa Wisdom. If you want to support us, you can do so on patreon.com slash antiquarian adventures in meta reality. For further information, look us up on stevepattersonantiquarian.com. We look forward to joining you for further antiquarian, antiquarian adventures in meta reality.